Let's pray together. Before we pray, though, I'd like to ask you to just take a few, like 20 seconds, 30 seconds, when we bow our head to pray. And I would like you to ask God to speak to you today, um, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come and that this message that has been prepared will be for you. Now, that's not because there's some kind of special message here today. It's just simply because that's what we should be doing is we should be seeking God to speak to us. And so I'm going to pray that the power of the Holy Spirit will anoint uh, this preaching. I'm going to pray that the word of God will be illumined. But I want you to pray, God, please speak to me today. Say, speak to my heart. Help me today. So let's pray together. Yes, Father, you've heard our prayers. We want you to speak to us today through your word. We recognize that this word is your word, that it is the power of you unto salvation. We recognize that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write these words. These aren't the thoughts of Paul. They're the thoughts of you through Paul. We, we know that these things have been written for Christians in every culture, all around the world, every language, every ethnicity, every race. And for all of time, these words are here for us to study and to learn and to grow and to be mature in our faith, deep in our faith, rich, to, to enliven our faith. And so we ask that your powerful Holy Spirit of ministry will do that to us now. Please speak to us, we pray now, through this text we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Dirk Willems, Dirk Willems was a, a man who lived in the 1500s, and he was a man who did something very dangerous. He opened his Bible, and he started to read it, and he started to do what the Bible said. And in doing that, he forsook the Catholic Church that was uh, ruling at that time, and he decided that he was going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and he was going to trust in Jesus as his personal savior. And then as he was reading his Bible, he decided that he was going to uh, be baptized as a believer. And, uh, and then he decided that he was going to tell other people this good news and help them as well. And, uh, and he was arrested for this. He was arrested by the Roman Catholic Church, and he was arrested as a heretic. He was arrested for passing out uh, lies, the lies being that the Bible was the word of God, the Bible was true, the gospel was in Jesus Christ, and the, the Catholic Church wasn't teaching that, and that uh, the true biblical baptism was the baptism of believers. Uh, so he was arrested. They were arresting lots of people that they considered to be heretics because they believed exactly what you and I believe here. And uh, they were arresting so many of them that they didn't know where to incarcerate them. So they put Dirk in with uh, several others in a, a castle that had a moat around it in a certain section of the castle. He was starved almost to death. Um, and then uh, eventually he took some rags that he had found. He tied them into a rope and he escaped. He, he, he jumped, he took it, put it out the window. And he left on a night where it, was, it had frozen the moat over. And so Dirk climbs out of the window 
and he scurries across the ice, and he was able to get across the ice because he had so been emaciated uh, by, by starvation that he was simply lightweight, and he headed across the ice, and he was heading to the Protestant land where he would be safe because he was arrested and he was uh, told that he would be burned at the stake. And so Dirk gets down the rope, it's nighttime, he gets across the ice, and he starts heading across this open field. When he does that, a guard sees that he is doing that, and the guard heads across the ice. But the guard had more weight than Dirk had, and the guard fell into the ice, and he's, he's drowning in the ice-cold water. Dirk hears him crying out for help, and because he, and he has faced with a, a terrible decision to run straight into the Protestant lands where he would be kept safe, or to go back and to save his pursuer. Dirk decided that what the word of God would have him to do is love his enemy as himself. And he went back and he pulled this man out of the icy water as he was drowning. He pulled him onto safety. By that time, though, other guards had taken Dirk and had captured him. The guard that he had saved wanted them to just let Dirk go. But the bailiff said, no, we're, we let him go. We're burning you at the stake. This guy is a heretic. And so Dirk was rearrested, and two months later he was burned at the stake. And, and his burning at the stake was an awful time for him because an east wind came, and so the bottom half of his body was burned, but the fire was not reaching the top half of his burn, and he suffered for many, many hours uh, in, in great agony and pain. Why did Dirk make such a confusing, odd decision? Why did Dirk not just take off across that field and let his pursuer die and go find freedom for himself? What a, what a strange choice that he made, and yet what a glorious thing that he did as well. And I wanted to use that as an illustration of, of grace, an illustration of caring about somebody even beyond yourself to look at this text again and what we're looking at. You know, Paul has been writing this amazing letter, uh, the letter to the book, uh, to the Ephesians, and he has been writing it in, 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 in this beginning section. He has been basically giving glory to God and telling us how blessed we are. That's basically the theme of this section. He's giving glory to God, and he's telling us how blessed we are. And quite frankly, the entire section that we've been looking at for all these weeks can be summed up by chapter 1 in verse 1. Notice what Paul says. Blessed be God, the, Father of our, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And there it is. He is giving glory to God, and he is telling us how blessed we are. And what we have been looking at so far, uh, last week what we looked at in kind of taking an overall view of this is we looked at the idea of God's power and how Paul is glorifying God for his power, that salvation is an act of power and God's power. Now what we want to look at today is how Paul is seeking to glorify God and to show us how blessed we are by focusing on God's grace and mercy and kindness. Now we've already seen that. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. He says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And here he introduces the love of God. And that love of God, in verse 5, predestines us to adoption. God takes us as his own children. He adopts us as his own children. Then in verse 6 he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace 
in which he made us accepted, or you remember, graced us in the beloved. And so here, this focus is on the glory of God's grace. He blessed us with grace, and we are blessed because of his grace. And then, of course, in verse 8, which he made to abound or, or lavished toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God's grace was lavished upon us. He made it to abound before us. So Paul has been highlighting and showing the glory and explaining God's grace. Well, we want to continue that because Paul is actually then, when he gets to chapter 2, he actually does something to help highlight the grace of God as well. Now, I'm going to say something, but I know there's some children here, and I want to say something to you children first before I say it. I'm going to use what for you and I would be a bad word if you used it in a wrong way, and that's the word hell, okay? Uh, don't use the word hell. Don't, don't tell somebody to go to hell. Don't use the word hell. That's not, in fact, I want to really urge you kids, don't use any bad words, okay? Uh, I know bad words, especially as you get older, make you feel tough and adult and everything, if you can use the bad words that people do. But, but God created you that, that, that beautiful things and edifying things would come out of your mouth. And whenever you use a bad word or that bully in a playground uses a bad word, he's actually not showing that he's tough. He's degrading himself. He's, he's making himself less than the, than the image bearer that God had made him to be. And that's an ugly thing. And so I don't want you to... But sometimes the Bible uses these words that are sometimes used in ways that are bad. They're not bad in and of themselves. They're, not, they're certainly not bad when the Bible uses them because there is a place called hell. And hell is a place where people will suffer forever and ever and ever for rejecting God. So I'm going to use this phrase, and I'm even going to use it in the way that sometimes people use it when they're angry. But kids, I don't want you to see that as a license for you to use it, and I'm only using it. And I don't use these, this word in my normal conversation. So here we go. You will sometimes hear people make the, the statement, I hope you rot in hell. I hope you rot in hell. Now, if somebody were to make that statement, that is an extreme statement. And when you hear that statement made by people, they often make it out of incredibly incredible anger and resentment and it's an anger and a resentment sometimes that is because of a terrible, terrible crime that has been done. Oftentimes, if somebody is convicted of a terrible crime where, say, they murdered somebody, say they murdered somebody's wife or they murdered somebody's mother or they murdered somebody's daughter, they murdered somebody and they've been found guilty and they're about to be sentenced, oftentimes then they allow family to respond and to say things in court. And oftentimes, that's when you will hear somebody with anger in their eyes and in their heart, they will say to somebody, I hope they kill you, and I hope that you will rot in hell. I hope you will rot in hell. Now, I'm not, not going to go any further than that to say that that's what people would say. The truth of the matter is, though, what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 is that you and I should rot in hell. Every one of us should rot in hell. That's the language that Paul is using here, okay? Look at the language. We're called children of disobedience at the end of verse 2. We're called children of wrath at the end of verse 3. Look at the verses again. And you, 
he made alive shouldn't be there. Well, that that's added. Um, which I, I, so that's why I'm skipping over. If you see me skipping over it, that's been put there by the editors. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. Now notice that word, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, children of wrath, just as the others. We all conducted ourselves. We are all children of wrath. You, I'm not speaking of you, I'm saying the, the phrase, somebody could say to you and I, you deserve to go to hell. You deserve to rot in hell. And that would be true. That would be true. Now you say, yeah, but when people say that on the stand there, they actually have lots of selfish uh, hatred and such like that. It's gone beyond righteous hatred. And I get that. Although I have to tell you, and I, I've used this illustration before, that when I th went through, that when I, I simply walked into the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. for the purpose of learning about this, having been a student of World War II and a, a student of the Holocaust in some sense. And by the time I got out of that place and I was walking out after seeing all of the shoes of the little children that were, that, that were lost, of seeing all of the, the families, of seeing the video of, of bodies and corpses being pushed into, into massive graves, seeing the videos of people being shot massively. After seeing all of that and seeing pictures of Hitler, pictures of Goring, pictures of Himmler, pictures of Eichmann, and recognizing what these men have done, having recognized and thought about the, the families in America, the families in Europe, the families in Russia, the families in places where their, their loved ones were killed and executed because of these men and their terrible nationalism and their terrible thing, the injustice, the suffering, the pain, the evil, walking out of that place, I said, I am glad those men are in hell. I am glad those men are in hell. It was just a, 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 an emotional release of, of a sense of injustice and a sense of, 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 of anger, of righteous anger. And dear friends, that's what God has toward us. You say, wait a minute, Todd, this is so overstated. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, most of the people that I run into are basically good people. Well, wait, let's, let's look in detail to this. Let's look at, at, at what this is saying about how we literally treat God. Look at verse 1 again. And you who were dead. You who were dead. What does that mean? You who were dead. What if somebody were to say to you, you're dead to me, or I'm dead to you? I, and I've heard people had that said to them. I talked to a young Jewish Christian in Israel, and he said, the moment I was baptized, he said, my parents let me go to evangelical church. They didn't care if I did that. They didn't care if I read my New Testament. But the moment that I was baptized, and that's the power of baptism in, in terms of a witness. The moment I was baptized, my father shut the door and said, you're dead to me. Never come back here again. You're dead to me. You're out of the will. You're not my child. You're dead to me. Well, this is saying that we are dead. God is dead to us as well. This is saying we're dead in trespasses and sins. It, 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 it's basically what this is saying is, is that by nature we said, you mean nothing to me. You're dead to me. I'm dead to you. 
I feel nothing about you. That's what people say when they say that. You're dead to me. It's over. This relationship is over. I'm dead to you. You're dead to me. It's over. You mean nothing to me. I have no interest in you. I feel nothing toward you. I have no attraction to you. I'm not drawn to you in any way. I feel no interest in you. I have no desire to relate to you. I want to have no communication with you. I want to have no friendship with you. I want to have no fellowship with you. That's what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. That is what it means. I have no interest in you whatsoever. Whether you exist, whether you're alive, I don't want to know you. Now, sometimes that expresses itself in very overt ways in the person who claims to be an atheist. And, of course, there are no atheists. They're just people who repress the truth that is constantly coming at them through creation, through the, through the, through the, uh, through the sun. They, they know through the skies, the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. They know there's a God, but they, they're, they're repressing that, and so they're atheists. And so sometimes it's vehement. I don't even believe that he exists. Okay? that's what, He's dead to me. That, that's what they were saying. But some are much more subtle, but it's still exactly the same thing. You witness to people and they say, listen, I just want you to know I have no interest in your God whatsoever. I don't want you to talk to him about me. Please stop witnessing to me about Jesus. No, I'm not going to read your Bible. No, I'm not going to come to church with you. No, I don't want to talk about this stuff anymore. In fact, I wish you would quit bringing it up. In fact, I demand that you quit bringing it up because I find it offensive. Stop. That is saying, that's an expression, I'm dead to this God. I, I, want, I, have no, I don't want him. I'm, I have no interest in him. He's dead to me. Forget it. Get him out of my life. And some people just attack God, and in, in, in their, their sense of this deadness, God actually is an attack on God. Some people will say, why is there evil in the world? Why is there disease? Why do children die of cancer? Why is there violence in the world? Or I had a personal friend, and a drunk driver hit him, and he's in a wheelchair. Or I had a, I had a friend, and, and he got ALS or something like that. Why would God allow this to me? He is a bad God. He's a bad God. I want nothing to do with him. And that's what it means when it says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Well, actually, look at that phrase. We are dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean? What does it mean, trespasses? Trespass. Well, we kind of know what it means. There's a line. Don't go over it. You go over the line, you're trespassing. That's, that's actually what this means. A trespasser is somebody who defies you. A trespasser is somebody who frustrates you, who offends you, who angers you, who goes against your wishes. If you have a neighbor and that neighbor has a dog, and that dog has decided that your neighbor's yard is a great place to romp around and be, do doggy fun things, and your yard is the place to use as a restroom. And you say to your neighbor, hey, your dog is doing his business in my, in my yard. Keep your dog out of my yard. Keep your dog out of my yard. And your neighbor makes no effort to keep his dog out of your yard. None whatsoever. And you become frustrated with that. You become angry at him. Or you might say to your neighbor, I don't want you hunting or riding your quad all through my property. I don't want you. And you post signs. No hunting. And all of a sudden, you look out your back door, you hear a quad, look out, there he goes, all dressed in camo, gun on the front of it, and he's kind of, what is he doing? I told him no. And you get on your quad, and you go confront him. He said, get off my property. No, no, you're not allowed to do it. And the next day, there he goes, buzzing right through. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what you say. 
He's constantly crossing the line, crossing the line, crossing the line. And that frustrates us. It gets us angry. It offends us. And they don't care that they're offending us when they do that. Let's make it even worse. A spouse who has affairs, who keeps crossing the line of marriage and what's appropriate. And think of the frustration of that trespassing that's going on 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 the faithful spouse. He's having affairs. Or he flirts, he flirts, he flirts. Or the spouse that crosses the line and gambles the, the, the money away or, or drinks the money away or, or, or whatever. It's, it's this constant disregard, this constant crossing the line and how frustrated we get, how angry we get at that, how offended we get at that. And notice what Paul is saying here in verse 1. We are dead to God and we are dead and it is seen in the sphere of trespassing and sin. We just keep frustrating him and angering him. We have very little disregard. And then look at verse 3. We do what our wishes and our wills are. Look at verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, all of us at one time conducted ourselves, lived our lives out in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires, not of God, but of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We had a totally disregard for what he wanted, and we just, what it was all about us. I want to do this. I want it my way. I could care less what you think. I'm going my direction. I'm the one who's in charge. And that's what we did. This is how we treated God. And then we aligned with God's enemy. We aligned ourselves with God's enemy. Now imagine you had a child. And I've actually had this happen in my life. But imagine you had a child who, junior high, high school, thought he or she had a friend. And then they found out that the crowd somehow turned against them. And their very best friend, instead of standing with them, joined the crowd. And suddenly was aligned with your, with your child's enemies. You look at that and you say, you get angry at that person. Say, Why did they not stand by my child? Why did they do this? Why did they align themselves with mine? Or imagine you're in a workplace and you have a workmate and you've worked together so well for all these years and then all of a sudden they went on the other side and they aligned themselves with a group that somehow is against you or they betrayed you or something like that. What, why, why, did you, why, why did you betray? Why did you align yourself with it? Jan and I had a friend and this friend, part of her testimony was that she was in a terrible car accident and the car accident was so bad that she was literally in a full body cast. So many bones were broken. And she had to lay for months in a full body cast. And one day, while she was laying there in the full body cast, her husband and her best friend came to visit her and announced to her that her husband was divorcing her and her and her best friend, her best friend and her husband were getting married. What an act of betrayal. What a terrible act of aligning with enemy. What a terrible thing. And you see, dear friends, what Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 are saying is, this is how people, we are by nature before God. We are by nature before God. You're dead to us. We're doing what you don't want us to do. We're running our, following our own desires, not yours. And we're aligning with Satan. We're, we're going to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works into sons of disobedience. That is who we are. That is what we are. And you see, it is very right then for God to consider us children of wrath. 
how just, how fair, how right it is for God to say, you are so hateful toward me, you are constantly trespassing me, you have aligned yourself with my enemy, you are opposed to me, you deserve to go to hell. You deserve to be in hell. And you see, this is where, for us, when we go back and we remove ourselves from that situation, all of us and God, we put ourselves in the situation of the courtroom scene, and sitting there in the witness stand is the murderer, and standing in front of the murderer is the father whose daughter was murdered, or the husband whose wife was murdered, or the child whose mother was murdered, and they look him in the eye and they say, I hope you rot in hell. We get that. We get that. But what we wouldn't get, what we don't get, is Dirk Willems. You know, Dirk Willems could have looked at that man drowning and saying, for the last eight months, you starved me. For the last eight months, you tortured me. And now you're preparing a fire to kill me. (laughs) you deserve to drown and you deserve to rot in hell. But Dirk Willems instead looked at him and said, this man will drown if I don't help him. This man's wife will become a widow tonight. This man's children will become fatherless tonight. This man may perish and go to hell right this instant in front of me. I need to reach my hand in this cold water and pull this man out. That was grace. That's confusing to us. But it's glorious as well. And you see, dear friends, that's what God did to us. That's what God did for us. And that's what Paul gets at in verse 4. But God, Do you see that phrase, but God? Notice, one through three, you deserve to rot in hell. You are under my wrath. But then in verse four, it says, but God, and God does something completely different, confusing, but glorious and different. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. (coughs) You see, dear friends, what Paul is doing here is he's describing an extremely high level of love. Extremely high level. There's different levels of love. Some love is easy. Puppies, kittens, that's easy love. They're so doggone cute. They're so neat. They're so pretty. They're just so cute. That's easy. Lovable people. That's easy. That's easy. It's easy to love lovable people. People who are kind. People who are sweet. People who are gentle spirit. People who are genuine. People who are humble. People who have a servant heart. It is so easy to love these people. But then there's higher qualities of love. Higher levels of love. Richer love. Deeper love. Love that is greater. 
Jesus said in John 15, 3, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. There's a great form of love, to lay down your life, to give your life for your friends. Love, love, greater, great love, higher levels of love, richer love is, say this, love that is not reciprocated. Love by which you love somebody, but you get nothing back. It's a one-way love. Loving somebody who's extremely mentally handicapped and is incapable of loving you back, and yet year in and year out, caring for them, being patient with them, giving to them, providing for them. Loving somebody who has dementia or Alzheimer's, and and perhaps that dementia or Alzheimer's has turned them into being somebody mean. So now they don't know you, and they're mean to you, and they accuse you, and things like that. But, But I've seen people just continue to love them, continue to visit with them, continue to reach out to them, continue to protect them, getting nothing in return. That's a great form of love. How about loving somebody who's bitter or mean? Somebody who, who say, life, life has, has been harsh to them in some way. Maybe a drunk driver hit them, and now they're paralyzed from the waist down, and they're, they're just filled with bitterness. They're filled with anger. They're filled with meanness, and they're mean and demanding and impatient and angry with everybody around them. And then you have their caretakers, their parents, or their spouses who continue to just faithfully love them and be patient with them, even though they're treated so, treated so shamefully by the person because they're so mean and bitter. And then, of course, there's love for your enemy. A love for somebody who doesn't love you. A love for somebody who persistently hates you. And that you respond with love toward your enemy. You bless those who persecute you. And you respond by dramatically and sacrificially doing something for the good of your enemy. That's glorious love. And that's the love that God shows. And that's why, look at verse three, uh, 4, I'm sorry, what it says. But God... But God did something different than we would expect to the children of wrath who deserve to go to hell. But God, and then notice what he says next, who is rich in mercy. Mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is pity. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is is feeling for the needs of somebody who is in need at that time. That's mercy. It's caring about them. It's seeking to help somebody in need. Mercy is a willingness to help somebody in need. That's what Dirk Williams did. He helped that guard in need. Mercy is is a willingness to help somebody in need. And look at what this says, verse 3, 4 says about God's mercy. God is rich in mercy. God has tons of mercy. God has vast storehouses of mercy. God has billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of mercy. God is infinitely merciful. God's very nature is to see a need and to want to help it and to want to, uh, he sees a sickness, want to cure it. He sees a hurt, wants to help it. That's what mercy is. And he sees us dead in trespasses and sins. You're nothing to us. We don't want you. We don't want to follow you. We don't have anything to do with you. We're atheists. We hate you. We don't want to read your Bible. We don't want to go to church. We don't want you. And God is rightfully angry at them as I was to Hitler and Goring and Eichmann. God was, is rightfully and justly angry at that. And his wrath is toward that. But in the same time, God also is rich in mercy. And he says, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you don't know what you're doing here. 
You don't realize what you're, you don't understand your need. You sell, your self-love, your self-idolatry, your hatred toward me, that is, that is not good for you. You're in trouble here. You're in trouble. I need to help you. Why would God do that? God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Then notice what Paul goes on next. Because of his great love, his great love. The word great there is the word, we get our word poly from that. Poly, polymorphous, polyphase, poly this. It means, it means a, a large quantity. It means much, many, plenteous. Because of God's plenteous love, because God is so much love, notice this. He says, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he's loved us, he locked onto us. It's a past completed tense. He locked this love onto us because of which he loved us. He, he made us alive together with Christ. Then he says this, for by grace you have been saved. Now we know grace. We've been studying grace. It's that unmerited love. It's that love for people who don't deserve to be loved. It's that love for people who deserve to rot in hell. They deserve to rot in hell, but I love them. They don't love me back, but I love them. They don't want to do me good, but I'm going to do them good. They won't reciprocate, but it doesn't matter because I'm giving them grace. It's grace. God, by grace, Paul says, you have been saved. And so now he uses the word, the, the idea of grace. Then he talks about how, verse 6, we've raised together with him, we're seated together with him, Christ Jesus. Then look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, in the vast eons that are going to come after this present evil age is over, he might show, now look at the phraseology here, the exceeding riches of his grace, okay? So there's all kinds of words being given here, isn't there? It's not just his grace, it's the riches of his grace. God is so rich in grace. And then... It's the exceeding riches of his grace. Now, let's say somebody had a million dollars. Look at that. I got a million dollars right here. A million dollars. That's a lot. Of, I'm a millionaire. That's a lot of money, a million dollars. And somebody comes walking along and says, well, I have a billion dollars right here. Now, how much more of a million is a billion dollars? Is it twice? No, that's $2 million. Is it 10 times? No, that's $10 million. Is it 100 times? No, that's $100 million. Is it 999 times more than a million dollars? No, that's $999 million. A billion dollars is a thousand times more. You're a millionaire. That's chump change for me, buddy. I'm a billionaire. And then a trillionaire comes along? That's a thousand times more than the billionaire. And God has exceeding amount of grace, exceeding riches. Look at the phrase, exceeding riches of his grace. Now notice this, in his kindness towards us, kindness. What is that word there? The word actually has its root meaning in the Greek language as usefulness, helpfulness. And then listen to, listen to some of the lexicons. The quality of being helpful or beneficial. 
It's the quality of being helpful or beneficial. That's where that usefulness, helpfulness is. Good, it's translated goodness, kindness, generosity. Readily, another translation, a readily generous disposition. It's somebody wants to help. Somebody wants to do good, you good. Is there anything you need? How can I help you? What do you need? I'm there for you. You need anything, pick up the phone. Call. That's what the word means. Now, notice what this verse is saying. That in the ages to come, God is going to show the exceeding riches of his grace towards us in pouring out this constant generosity and love and goodness and kindness to us for ages and ages and ages, for billions and billions of years, to just as an expression of his great heart of love for us in heaven, in, 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 in the new heavens and the new earth, and forever and ever and ever, God is going to be showing forth grace, showing forth kindness, showing forth love, showing forth mercy. mercy. Our job literally is going to be there and just have God pour out his love on us, pour out his love on us, show the glory of his love, show the glory of his grace, Show the glory of his goodness upon us forever and ever and ever. That's actually a very bright future. That's an amazing future. And that's the nature of who God is. And so faced with people who are dead in trespasses and sins, faced with people who have aligned themselves to the devil, faced with people who are living according to this present evil age, faced with people who defy him, rebel against him, disregard him, hate him, justly deserve hell, to the praise of the glory of his grace, God says, I need to help them. I want to help them. I love them. I care for them. Uh, They're in trouble. They need me. They need me to come and deliver them from their sins, come and deliver them from Satan, come and deliver them from death, come and deliver them from destruction. They need me to come, and I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my beloved son, God the Son, God the Word. I'm going to take my son. I'm going to work in conjunction with my son. I'm going to align them to my son. I'm going to choose them in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And then I'm going to send my son, and my son is going to be born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might suffer their punishment under the law. My son is going to die upon the cross for them. My son is going to be executed. My son is going to be nailed. They're not going to be executed. My son is going to be executed. And then my son's dead body is going to be put into his tomb. And then I am going to come with my life power and I'm going to raise him from the dead and I am going to give him new life. I'm going to raise him up from the dead and then I'm going to bring him back far above all principality and power. I'm going to bring him back and he is going to reign here at my right hand and because these people are in him and he is they're going to be in him when he's on the cross they're going to be in him when he's buried they're going to be in him when he rises again from the dead and they're in union with him now they're one with him I'm going to bless them with all of blessings in him and then I'm going to come to their lives at a certain time at the perfect time and the perfect place and I'm going to say to their dead souls live and they're going to come alive And they're going to see my son, and they're going to love my son, and they're going to accept my son, they're going to embrace my son, they're going to run, they're going to love my son. I'm going to do that to them. Why? Because I am a God who is full of rich grace, and they are going to experience my grace. Because I love them, and I feel bad for them. And I'm going to rescue them and deliver them and give them new hearts and remake them and adopt them as my children. And then, sending my son again, 
when new heavens and new earth will be formed, they will be raised from the dead in their resurrected bodies. And then my plan, my plan is to show forth my grace upon these who are now my beloved, redeemed, glorified children. I'm just going to show them my grace. Show them my grace. I have a grandchild I haven't seen for a long time, too, who are going to come and visit me for the month of June and July. Sorn and Ruby are coming, and I haven't seen them for a long time. And Jan and I are just thinking of ways that we can have fun with Sorn and Ruby and ways that we can give Sorn and Ruby fun. They, that's what they're doing. That's what we're doing. And we do with our grand, all of them. Oh, Isaac's coming over. Riley's coming over. Hey, Penny's coming over. Hey, what can we do? Let's do this. Let's do that. Hey, let's, let's take them out for ice cream. Hey, what are we trying to do? We're trying to show, exhibit our great love and grace and affection toward them. And God is going to do that for all of eternity. That's his plan. Now, what, do you, what should you think about all of this? I think we should think about all of this exactly the way the Apostle Paul thought about it. <coughs> Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of your grace. You are so gracious so loving, so rich in mercy, so rich in kindness. See, this section of the Bible is primarily to the glory of God, to the glory of God, to the glory of his grace, to how he has shown his grace, how he has shown his love. Dear ones, this is to the glory of God. This isn't even about us. In that sense, it's about God. And let me encourage you by way of application let me encourage you to make the praise of God a major part of your private prayer life. Dear ones, start your prayer life off with God. Don't start with a laundry list of requests. Oh, when you're in great need and there's something very serious about it, you can lead with that. I'm sure that Matt and Shannon led with Fritz's name. We all did too. We led with Fritz's name many times. But normally, start your prayer time off reflecting on and giving God the glory that you just, I see it as a duty even. I said, God, you deserve all glory and honor and praise. I'm going to begin to praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise you for the salvations you give. Praise you for your son. Praise you for your creation. Praise you for your glory. Praise you for your providence. Praise you for your mercy. Praise you for your grace. Praise you for your love. I want to urge you, make praise. Because when you do that, and mixed with thanksgiving, you're going to find that your vision of God is going to grow and grow and grow. God who's here all the time with you, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And the other thing that's going to happen, the other thing that's going to happen is your heart's going to expand. And your heart is going to grow and grow and grow. And you're going to feel very close. And, and you're going to, your love for God is going to grow. And your confidence in God is going to grow. And you know what's going to happen then? When a doubt or a trial, or a difficulty comes in, your, your default mode is not going to be, oh, no, God doesn't love me. Oh, no, God doesn't love me. Oh, no, where's God? No, no. I've spent hours, you're going to say, reflecting and delighting in this great and glorious God. Oh, no. Everybody calm down. Take a deep breath. He's for us. If he is for us, who could be against us? If he did not spare his own son, we, he's got this covered. No, God is good. 
And that's my second point of application I'd like to say to you is this. Get convinced. Get convicted. Get stubborn if need be. Embrace it. Fully believe it. This is your God. He loves you. He loves you immensely. He's loved you for billions of years and will always love you. And he loves you with grace and he loves you with mercy and he loves you with kindness and he loves you with patience and he loves you so much that he would sacrifice his son for you. He's for you. You move his heart. You're, you're, you're his. He loves you. And listen, dear ones, listen. Get this. Get this. Understand who he is, what he's done. Get Ephesians into your head and heart. So that when you fail, when you fall short, when you screw up, when you sin, when you say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do, think things you shouldn't think, you don't walk around like you're the black sheep of the kingdom of God or barely even belong here. Or No. When you doubt... And when you doubt that you have forfeited your salvation, when you doubt that you've overtaxed God's love, when you doubt you've pushed the edge too far, when you doubt you've been way too lazy, been way too sinful, you fell back into these patterns, you've done it now, there's no way, he's going to cut you off. You need to understand, you need to understand, you need to embrace, you need to get what Paul's trying to get into our heads and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. This God is for you. This God deals with you on the basis of grace, not on the basis of performance. It is not what my hands have done. It is not what I have done. It's not feelings that I have had. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's a God who is rich in mercy, rich in pity, rich in kindness, so that when I come to this God and say, God, I'm sorry, I've done it again. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I thought that. I'm sorry I've been living like this for the last couple of days. I'm sorry that I failed you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you recognize that you're talking to a God who has billions and billions and billions and trillions and trillions of dollars of mercy and kindness and grace and love. And that's why the book of Romans tells us, stand in his grace. Walk in his grace. Realize that you're dealing with a God of grace and mercy. And one quick look at the cross should make you realize this God really loves me. He loves me more than I'll ever be able to screw up. This God really loves me. Don't go back to works. Trust in his grace. Finally, I'd like to say to those of you who might be here today and you're not a follower in Jesus, I'd like to say this to you. Do not think from what I've said do not think that this God is soft because he's a God of grace. Notice that the verse said, we are children of wrath. He is still a God who has wrath. Paul says, remember the kindness and severity of God. God is both kind and severe. This is who this God is. He's not soft. He is holy. He hates sin. He punished sin upon his son. He takes sin seriously. There is a place called hell. And he will and is sending people to hell. He will hold people who will resist all of his efforts to reach out to them. He will hold them accountable and they will go to hell. 
This is a God who if you do not accept him, you do not come to him, you do not repent, you do not believe, you do not turn on the basis of his son, will punish you and will send you to hell. It's not because he's, he's hateful. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. It's, it's, not, it's not part of his general nature that he takes delight in sending people. He doesn't. You will send yourself to hell because he'll keep saying, come to me, believe, come to me, believe. And then you will say, no, no, no. And then he will say, then the verdict is final. The verdict is final. Depart from me. Depart from me. And you know what's so sad? He could say this. Depart from me. You could have been my child. You could have been in the new heavens and new earth. You could have been the focus of my love and grace. You could have had complete forgiveness in Jesus, but you would not. You would not. Depart. Dear ones, listen to me. Don't go to hell. Don't walk away. Because right now, God is going to show you mercy. God's going to show you mercy right now, unbeliever. And this is how God's going to show you mercy. He is going to, he's saying to you right now through the gospel, come to me. Come to me. I don't care how bad you've sinned. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many skeletons you have. I don't know, care how many, how many bad things you've done. Come to me. My mercy is greater than all of your sins. I can extend grace. I will forgive you. I will give you everlasting life. I literally offer you the best thing I could possibly offer you, my son Jesus. Come. Come. And all who comes, not one of them will be turned away. Oh, dear ones, please. If you're, if you're at this place in your life where you've been wrestling with these things, isn't it time for you to lay down your arms, put away your sin, and come to God and be overwhelmed and washed and cleansed by his grace and his love? And this amazing grace will save you. Oh, that's our heart's desire for you today. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, oh, God, we thank you that you are who you are. We thank you that the God, the only one true and living God, is a God of grace and mercy and love. Oh, Father, we see your grace and mercy, your tenderness and love in the butterfly, in the beautiful flower, in the love of loving people in our lives, but we see it best in your Son and on the cross. And in the new life that you offer, oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your rich richness and kindness and love. Or we wouldn't be here today. Thank you. And, Father, if there's any here, whether it's a young child, a teenager, an adult, a senior citizen, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, your grace is greater than all of our sin. And you offer salvation. Oh, let them hear. Open the eyes of the blind. Unstop their ear. Give that heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh that beats and that feels. 
Show them Jesus. Save them, I pray. In his precious name, I pray.